Does your organisation create social change or aspire to? Are you ready to take your work to the next level? Spark Strategy is an agency for strategic thinking, transformation and sustained action. Bringing together ideas, capability and capital, Spark helps the not-for-profit, government, corporate and philanthropic sectors with strategic planning, sustainable business model design and government engagement to unleash their potential and to transform themselves and the societies in which they work and live. As a certified B Corp, Spark stands for purpose, not just profit. So if you're ready to spark ideas in your organisation, go to sparkstrategy.com.au to find out more. Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, happy episode 50. I can't believe it. I'm so humbled that this podcast has grown from an idea I had over a cup of tea on an April day back in 2018 into a vibrant, inspiring and connected community of people, all passionate about shaping a better world. I had wondered for a while who would be episode 50 (laughs) and never did I expect that it would be the wonderful Anele Sapuaga, the former Prime Minister of the Pacific Island nation of Tuvalu and one of the global faces of the fight against climate change. I heard Anele speak a few years ago and he said to the audience, if you save Tuvalu, you save the world. And I still remember the shivers that I felt upon hearing that. And I had the exact same feeling when I heard Anele speak at the Australian Council for International Development Conference earlier this week. So first up, I'm so excited to share with you Anele's keynote address. And following that, you'll hear the interview that I did with Anele and his wife, Solalo. But before we get into it, I want to say the biggest thank you to each and every one of you for listening to this podcast and for being a part of the Goodwill Hunters community. We're only just getting started and I'm both scared and excited at the prospect of what we have in store for the next 12 months. So without further ado, here's the formidable, courageous and iconic Anele Sapuaga. The renowned Pacific climate champion, the Right Honourable Anele Sapuaga, MP, uh, who's firmly placed Tuvalu at the forefront of the international climate change movement, bringing international attention to the Blue Pacific and the imminent threats posed by climate change. Right Honourable Supuango was elected to the Tuvaluan Parliament in 2010, was sworn in as Prime Minister in August 2013, and served as Prime Minister until very recently. As Prime Minister, he worked tirelessly on international efforts to address problems resulting from global warming in Tuvalu and across the Pacific, establishing Tuvalu's National Advisory Council on Climate Change in 2014 and representing Tuvalu at numerous UN climate change conferences as lead spokesperson for climate change action. 
Tuvalu hosted the 50th Pacific Islands Forum in August this year, where he played a pivotal role in ensuring that the forum communique had a key focus on climate change. It's a great privilege for our membership to host the Right Honourable Supoange and his wife, Madam Supoange, who is in the audience today, and we're delighted he will open our national conference. Please join me in warmly welcoming him uh, to the podium. Thank you. Thank you very much mistress of our ceremony for that very, very comprehensive and kind introduction. Talofa, I bring greetings from the people of Tuvalu. They are still there on the islands, not yet floating. But first of all, I too want to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the lands on which we are meeting. And may I humbly suggest that paying respects uh, to these landowners is not enough. It is certainly my hope that this uh, beautiful country will do justice to recognize uh, and to pay full respects to the owners of this land. In Tuvalu, as you may know, we managed to throw off the shackles of colonialism in 1978. Perhaps it is now time for proper recognition for the traditional owners of these lands. Thank you. Then I want to thank ACFID, their organizer, CEO and president, and all of you members of the organization for kindly inviting me to your national conference. Tuvalu has a long-standing relationship with a number of development assistance organizations that are members of ACFID. The Tuvalu Association of NGOs, Tango, has been working with a number of Australian-based NGOs, and we, the people of Tuvalu, fully appreciate that partnership. And may I also put on records my sincere gratitude and great appreciation to the people and the governments of Australia, past and on, for the enormous development assistance that our small island nation of Tuvalu has received from you over the many years. You have made lives easy in Tuvalu and made a great difference, and I want to thank you very much indeed. We, Tuvalu, are friends of Australia. There are Tuvaluans living in Australia. They have, they have their grandchildren that are Australians. There are Australians living in Tuvalu. They have their grandchildren are also in Tuvalu. And of course, we support the Wallabies. Unfortunately, uh, we don't share the outcome of the World Cup. Uh, but as you may be aware, I hosted the Pacific Island Leaders Forum in Tuvalu, as we heard from the introduction, just a month ago in August, with a theme, Securing Our Future in the Pacific. There are a number of observations that can be made from this meeting, which I am happy to share during this talk. As this platform, your conference, provides a good opportunity for me to overview my concerns and hopes for the Pacific region. 
Prior to hosting the Leaders Forum in Tuvalu, we in Tuvalu held two events. The first was a climate change youth forum, and the other was a climate change sautalanga, or discussion. The youth forum was meant for Tuvaluan youth, young girls, young boys, to come together and assess their aspirations for the future in the light of climate change effects, impacts on atoll nations like Tuvalu. The Youth Forum was very productive and it was a very successful event, allowing for a strong voice from our young people to express their concerns and to state their aspirations about their future. The clear message that came from the youth is that they wanted to preserve their culture and their identity as Tuvaluans. They did not want to become citizens of another country. This view, this message, was taken to the UN Secretary General's Climate Change Summit in New York. And I was happy to secure funding and support to send 10 young girls and boys to New York to express and share their story to the world. The climate change Sautalanga, on the other hand, was meant for the leaders to precursor the Pacific Island Leaders Meeting, the leaders of the Pacific Island uh, Forum. Most of the leaders from the Pacific, of course, attended this meeting. The notable exceptions, unfortunately, were Scott Morrison and Jacinta Ardern. Although Prime Minister Ardern did express an interest for time change so that she could attend. We discussed many important issues relating to climate change and the Pacific. We also developed and issued a Pacific Sits Declaration, which had clear positions on a ban on the construction of new coal-fired power plants and coal mines, and to hold subsidizing fossil fuels. You may wish to check the text of the declarations. We called on financial institutions in the Pacific and worldwide to divest from fossil fuels and reinvest in renewable energy and energy efficient technology. We strongly believed the leaders of the Pacific that is the way, the pathway for the world to move forward in order to avoid the catastrophic impacts of climate change. We acknowledge that climate change represents the single greatest threat to the security and survival of Pacific Island countries. We expressed concern about the impacts of climate change, not only on foreshore and coastal islands and biodiversity, but also on tuna stocks in our region, which is the basis of our economies in the Pacific. We called for measures to provide compensation for Pacific Island countries that have lost tuna stocks due to the effects of climate change. You look at the media this morning, it is happening everywhere. This is going to cause significant uh, devastations to our economies and possibly to the security of island nations in the Pacific. Serious implications are expected if we didn't 
address climate change with urgency. These were some of the issues that arose from our Sautalanga, our climate change discussion. We held this Sautalanga to ensure that the true voice of the Pacific was heard without the interference of our large neighbors. We were clearly right in, that, in this respect. Because the Pacific Leaders Forum communique that followed a day later, as you may have heard, is a very poor reflection of the Pacific's true concerns about climate change. As the PIF uh, chairman, myself, I was stunned, and I want to share this with you, by the unpacific tenor and manner of the Australian Prime Minister to water down the wording of the communique and to limit the concerns about climate change, much against the concerns and the tears that were set by the Pacific Island leaders. I thought, perhaps too ambitiously, that hosting the 50th PIF in Tuvalu, my country, which is perhaps the most threatened atoll nation due to impacts of climate change, would secure genuine, genuine sympathy and loyal understanding on our Tuvalu plea over the many years, calling for urgent and concrete response to climate change. And I thought hosting it in Tuvalu and showcasing our extreme vulnerability to the leaders of the world following just after the visit of the UN Secretary General to my country, Tuvalu and the Pacific, this opportunity would be a grand chance for the PIF leaders' family to come together to translate meaningfully in the Pacific way of family coming together to share our concerns and problems meaningfully and translate ideas like those under the step-up doctrine into some concrete leadership against climate change. Sadly, making money took over precedence over saving lives of people in these seats. That is a great concern. There was also deliberate attempt to play small to the contribution of the green climate funding and other international funding that is so crucial to saving lives on small island countries. We were a little bit put back by that response. And of course, following that, there was outburst calling for island countries to accept money and perhaps compromise their positions on climate change. $500 million offer to do to the Pacific is nothing compared to the cost of damages that have already been inflicted on the lives and livelihood of the people of the Pacific. I thought the outburst that came from one of the ministers was irresponsible and unbecoming. And I want to say to this, keep your mind. Tuvalu and the Pacific do not need to see these perks being used as an excuse for us to compromise our job, our responsibility to make sure the security and survival of our people on this planet. 
There were other outcomes that are so important that I want also to reflect. Perhaps it is in the text of my speech remarks this morning. Please have a look at that. And one of these that I want to use the rest, remaining part of my, my time is the intrusion and interference of out for outside forces into the Pacific, particularly taking advantage of the unique vulnerabilities of small island countries. China was there, other influences were there, and you know, straight after the forum, two of the small island countries changed allegiances from their traditional friends and partner, Republic of China, to mainland China. What for? Mainly to take advantage of the offers of money diplomacy for economic uh, activities, for promises of more aid, ODA. And I want to use these opportunities this, to call on the Pacific Island leaders as well as on our neighbors, Australia and New Zealand, to please do more. Step up and reset policies must be concretized in meaningful actions on the grounds in order to save the people of the Pacific, including my own country, Tuvalu. Let me also encourage the Pacific Island leaders themselves, including my own new government, to keep up the fight against climate change. To look at climate change not as a source for financing. Climate change is never and is not going to be the source of making money. It is a survival, it is a security, justice for the rights of the people. And we need to continue to work together with the rest of the world. Climate change and sources to address it is not ODA. It is a responsibility under the principles that we all came together more than 20 years ago in Rio to say the polluter must pay. The polluter must pay under the responsibility to do the right thing. We cannot allow this to, uh, the polluters to. Of course, I fully contribute, uh, appreciate what uh, our neighbors have contributed to the Pacific for their development. But climate change financing is not ODA. It has to match with also actions at home to cut down on emissions, because the more pollution we keep on pouring into the atmosphere, the more adaptation countries like Tuvalu would have to make. So uh, for the work of ACFID, I want to see, say this, thank you very much indeed for your advocacy. Please keep on the good work. There are other areas that we discussed in the forum and are great priority concerns in health, in non-communicable diseases, gender justice, women's rights, family planning and reproductive health. These are some of the issues that continue to face the Pacific Island countries, including Tuvalu. And as a former educator myself, the importance of literacy and numeracy are critical to the capacity development of our future generations. Quality education is a critical adaptation strategy. It is a right for all Pacific uh, young people, youth, 
to be properly educated so that they can respond to climate change with wise decisions. They need our help. So therefore, friends, I'm sorry the picture that I am giving you is really not a clear picture, very, uh, but it is a good fight. And I think we are, including ACFID, doing very good just uh, service to the people of the Pacific through continuing this advocacy because it is important for our peoples in the Pacific. I want to perhaps leave and sum up my discussion with three points. First, I believe the Australian government, through its TEPA policy, must translate this into meaningful actions with urgent new and additional climate change financing for the Pacific. The money that we have been offered is repackaging of existing funding from somewhere. You keep it, put this in this response, it will deny other activities already in the ODA package. So the message that I want to, I call on the government to please put additional and new funding for climate change that is accessible, predictable, and adequate for real adaptation on the grounds. The second point, the commitment to act progressively on a just transition from fossil fuels, particularly from coal burning, as in the 50th PIF communique towards a net zero greenhouse gas emissions must be honored. Otherwise, we are not in the Pacific community because the more coals you continue to burn to make money, it's the closer our people, our young people are to their total demise. And the last one, the imperative for durable, genuine, and meaningful partnerships between governments is also fundamental. We need to partner. And I encourage ACFIT to please also help your colleague partners in the Pacific, NGOs, to work. Because the real actions is taken by those on the grounds, including those on the outer islands in Tuvalu. We must work together to create fossil fuel divestment strategies. We need to develop climate change insurance to help re people recover from events. We need adaptation strategies that respond to the needs of local communities. We need legal assistance to fight those that threaten our future. We must all do every bit that we can to ensure the Pacific survives. And as I have been saying in many conferences worldwide, in the Pacific, United Nations, and all parts of the world, if we save Tuvalu, we save the world. Faftai Tuvalu Modetua. Thank you very much. Uh, His Excellency, after that very powerful and incisive uh, speech, uh, has time to take a couple of questions uh, from the floor. So if you could please say your name and organisation and address the conversation, uh, address the, His Excellency. Maybe Your Excellency, I could just uh, kick off. Um, you said that the money put on the table by Australia, the 500 million, was not uh, in the aid package, was not new money. Could you explain a little bit more how PIF 
uh, Pacific Island leaders understood that money? Uh, thank you, thank you, uh, uh, Mark. Uh, but let me acknowledge also, thank you very much, CEO uh, Paseo, for kindly inviting me. I, I, I understand, and many of the Pacific leaders understand, this funding is repackaged from already the existing ODA to the Pacific uh, uh, on some other sectors. It's uh, almost like taking this from one basket into and turning it into funding. Uh, and that it has nothing to do with climate change. Um, it's part of the ODA package that has already been there, identified. And of course we appreciate, and as I've said, we always appreciate what Australia people and the governments have been doing for, to support the Pacific Islands development. But the issue of climate change, uh, it really you have to contextualize this because the cost of adaptation, for example, in Tuvalu to coastal erosion and attacks on vegetations and re-educating our young people and uh, looking at the, you know, the need for legislations that can counter these measures and provide security for the people is, is enormous compared to this. Of course, there are attempts to move away from multilateral funding like Green Climate Fund. We understand what is happening in the Green Climate Fund, but let's focus on the spirit of that fund, which is really a survival funding for those vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And perhaps, uh, as I have been uh, saying, uh, countries like Australia, New Zealand, they have a very powerful voice in the United Nations, could use that to make right what is uh, uh, seen as wrong in the Green Climate uh, Fund, but not to step outside of these uh, multilateral uh, mechanisms to help the most vulnerable. So funding that it has been offered, 500 million over the next five years, is much appreciated. But we have to make sure these are properly clarified. We need clarity whether this will go into the Pacific, into the grounds for actions, for work there, or which just, which or, 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 or this would only be translated through consultancies or to the boards that are, and the money would, you know, practically not leave Australia, by the way, would just be on accounting papers, actually not delivered onto the grounds. That's my feel of that. Thank you very much. Uh, the lady at the back, if somebody could give her a microphone, please. Um, hello. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks, Mark. Um, Your Excellency, my name's Kate Lee. I'm the Executive Officer of the Trade Union Movement's International Solidarity Organisation, known as Union Aid Abroad Feeder. Um, thank you so much for coming and addressing us today. Uh, and uh, we most deeply respect the efforts of the trade union, uh, of the Pacific Island leadership in the forum um, some months ago. And I can assure you that many of us in Australia also shed tears along with you and uh, the other leadership at the um, failure of our government to act more strongly on this effort. Um, but I want to take up the point you made, one of your three main points at the end about just transition. Uh, this is a crucial issue and area for Australia. 
um, as a country that, as you know, is deeply dependent on a fossil fuel industry that goes right back into our colonialist history. Uh, so I'm interested to know more about your thoughts and about the leadership of Pacific Island nations in how um, you plan to or want to advance this discussion with the Australian government. Many in Australia are advancing this and, and trying to push this debate more strongly forward. But of course, any allied work with um, Pacific Island nations is very important in shifting the debate in Australia. Thank you again for coming. Thank you very much, Madam. Uh, that's a very critical question, and I think strikes at the basis of the necessity, the imperative for concrete actions against climate change, and that is to look at uh, a new uh, environmentally friendly mix of energy. And we in the Pacific, uh, I certainly um, strongly believe Australia is very well endowed and well resourced in sources of renewable energy. And I also, we also recognize there is a plethora and strong capacity at a technical level, technologically, as well to uh, move towards use, uh, development, and deployment and use of renewable energy technologies. And unfortunately, this uh, capacity and resource is not offered the opportunity because most of the sub subsidies, as we all know, is going towards, towards fossil fuels, uh, fuels at the moment. If that can be shifted to the development and more research on renewable energy, energy efficiency technologies, I strongly believe this would uh, uh, provide a great benefit in our efforts to address the cause of uh, global warming and cut down on emissions. Uh, into the atmosphere. I certainly believe that is a way to go. And uh, we stand to wonder, we stand wondering why this is not allowed to happen. And we are being asked in the Pacific, for example, we have NDCs under the Paris Agreement, and Tuvalu and many other small island countries are asked by everybody, everybody, members of the UN, the, the COP, United uh, Nations members to cut down on our emissions for us to reach targets of renewable energy in 2023. Or for Tuvalu, I pledge that we are going to go 100% renewable energy by 2025. For small, if we add all these NDCs of the world in the Pacific together, of the 14 member countries of the forum, it comes to 0.0% reduction of global emissions. That has nothing to do with climate change. We need domestic reduction of greenhouse gases as we pledged in Paris, and perhaps more. Now that we know one country is not trying to, is walking away from the Paris Agreement, we are in dire and serious uh, situation. If that position of the US is going to be allowed and not be filled by us, those who are still in the Paris Agreement, we are done. And the small island countries like Tuvalu, in 50 years, will no longer be there. Will go underwater. Is this a possible scenario for mankind, for humanity to allow to happen? Do you be believe that's a way we 
should allow our fellow people to come to that sort of uh, dilemma? I don't believe so. I think it would be shameful on all of us if we did allow that to happen. We must continue our advocacy. We must call for urgent actions and look at the economies and the benefits of shifting, allowing the experts on these renewable energy technologies to come forward and do their part. I'm sure they will give us a difference. Thank you very much. Wasn't that amazing? What an incredible and rousing address. Now, here's my one-on-one interview with the former Prime Minister of Tuvalu and his wife. When I walked into the interview room, I felt an overwhelming sense of calm and knew immediately I was in the presence of a man who has and continues to have a very significant impact on our world. And then I exclaimed, Rachel, after looking at my media lanyard and then promptly asked me if I'd been to Tuvalu. As we sat down to start the interview, I asked Anele how he would like to be addressed. And laughingly, he said, Anele. No titles, no fanfare, just a heartfelt conversation on the state of the world and the future of Tuvalu. Admittedly, the audio is not perfect in this recording. To be completely honest with you, I didn't even notice the noises in the background when we were recording because I was so engrossed in the conversation. So I hope you'll excuse the less than perfect audio and instead focus on the remarkable insights of a man and woman doing their very best to keep their country on the map and save the only home their people have ever known. Enelay, we've heard you speak this morning. Thank you so much again for being here. And the audience seemed quite speechless during your address. Felt that there was a lot of quiet in the room and everyone was so uh, in awe of what you had to say. So thank you. Appreciate that. One of the comments, uh, and I'd also like to introduce uh, Madame Salelo Safuaga. Thank you also for chatting to me. This is such a privilege to chat to you both. Yeah. So one of the comments you made this morning when you started speaking was uh, that we also need to appreciate our Indigenous people and we need to move on from our own colonialism. Can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Well, I thought the, uh, the rights of people on the ground need to be respected in the same manner that the rights of those who are affected by climate change uh, need to be uh, recognized and responded meaningfully uh, in the context of these new doctrines of uh, step-up policies or research. So that's the context that I was talking about that we also really must give the opportunity for uh, to recognize the rights of indigenous people as well. You know, allow the opportunity for them uh, to really uh, uh, move beyond, uh, you know, mere uh, respecting their, their, they are the traditional indigenous owners of the land, but giving them more inclusiveness in the governance, discussion, dialogue, and, uh, and operationalization of, of that uh, recognition. Mm. It's a really interesting thing to remark on, and it makes, it makes me wonder, what is the impression of Australia amongst people in Tuvalu? It's, Australia is a very important uh, partner, and as I've said, um, it, it, it is a country upon which 
the people of Tuvalu uh, exert a lot of respect and appreciation, and uh, for which the, that they have gained and, and benefited a lot. Uh, through the um, development assistance, through personal contacts, and there are Tuvaluan families living in Australia, and they are Australians, and there are Australians living in Tuvalu, and they are Tuvaluans. So these personal interactions cannot be ignored in the dialogue as we move forward, uh, expressed by governments. So we have to uh, look beyond this, this uh, dynamics of ODA and that sort of thing, because that's not the whole totality of relationship uh, between uh, Australia and the Pacific Island countries, including Tuvalu. The personal connectivity and connections uh, have, has to be maintained and recognized as well. So put into the perspective of the step-up um, policy, we really need to do more so that we, uh, you know, we put into concrete actions these sentiments that, okay, governments have their own, but the connections between the people to people, their members of civil society, communities, local communities, has also uh, to be recognised. Yeah. And you spoke this morning about this topic and about the importance of civil society organisations in the Pacific, um, including the churches and and the NGOs. And uh, Madame Salalo, I understand that you are a part of Tango, um, which is uh, a, a Tuvalu network of NGOs. Are you able to comment on um, your experience working with NGOs in Tuvalu and what their role is um, in the climate change fight? Thank you very much for the opportunity. Yes, I, I, I used to work with the National Council of Women and a member of the, which is a, this organization is a member of the Tango, the Tuvalu Association of, of NGOs, an umbrella body. So it is very important for the civil society to be involved in the, especially in the issue of climate change. Because uh, when it comes to the actual uh, implementation of of uh, development activities, it's the people on the ground or at the grassroots level, at the communities, they are the ones who, who will be actually the ones to be affected by the impacts of climate change. And it is very important for us to be involved in all the, the um, from the decision making up to the implementation um, to involve the civil society. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I, I think one of the themes today that's come through is that we do so much talking in Australia about how we're going to help, but it's often not backed up with the actual programs and the, the money and the commitment to working with civil society organisations. If you could give one message to our government, what would it be? Well, I I would I want to encourage more perhaps uh, uh, more concrete actions to uh, to benefit both ways, not merely the political benefits uh, of of uh, engagement or partnerships, but also to focus on impacts on the grounds, as Salil was saying, that the actions are actually done by by people on the grounds by 
local communities, youth communities, by by women communities, uh, and island communities on our islands. This is where the actions take place. Governments are okay because they facilitate the mobilization of these partnerships. But uh, the bureaucracy there sometimes uh, plays its part towards the delaying of uh, activities uh, and the delivery be, delivery of these activities to the people that, that are uh, affecting, affected by, uh, uh, for example, climate change. So we, we really need to refocus on it. And also perhaps improve the policies of Australia uh, towards the work scheme, for example, to focus also on uh, responding to climate change. And I say this, uh, of course, we appreciate the opportunities to work, to get to Balwins and other islanders to come work in Australia. But this has to be translated, not merely getting wages and then working in the farms or driving here in Australia, it must also link to the capacity of Tuvalu to respond to climate change, to ensuring more sustainable livelihood or living on the islands. And there are practical ways of doing this. Workers cannot um, you know, come here and be separated from their families for three years. Practical measures I'm referring to is there any difficulty in bringing their spouses with them, their family, perhaps allowing chance for their children, perhaps free, year, uh, free kids to come along with the workers? They study in education school here in Australia for, say, uh, three years. And by the time they are ready to go home, they are probably ready to, to sit examinations that can get them into technology uh, tech, uh, colleges in Australia, go to university. They will go back with more capacity to contribute more meaningfully to livelihood in Tuvalu, and perhaps as a res uh, adaptation response to climate change. These are the practical measures that you really have to consider, not simply by saying step up, step up, you know, giving money, giving money. No. But you need to look at these innovative ideas, of course, allowing opportunities for jobs, but making sure it benefits also in the, the, uh, the home country, the sending country like Tuvalu. Yeah. I, I don't see any problem in uh, re-looking at these uh, immigration uh, traveling uh, policies to facilitate this engagement. You cannot separate a guy for three years leaving their family back home uh, for three years. Mm. I think it's a social injustice. Mm. And yes. if it is, if we are moving towards genuine partnerships. These are Pacific Island countries, neighbor of Australia. I don't think Australia would suffer if the families of this accompany the workers with their kids, their children, live here three years. That's grand opportunity for education for these kids. If they go back, if they prefer to stay in Australia, study more and become scientists, you know, engineers, yeah. you see the merits in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that would be more pragmatic and meaningful. Yeah. We can do more with that and build a source of 
very, very useful contributors to yeah. partnerships. And the Pacific will become suddenly, over years, not as the backwater of Australia, but as a most instrumental and useful source of resource yes. for engagement. Yeah. Even shifting production to, you know, and engagement to, to Pacific Island countries. Yeah. I think we really need to look at those sort of uh, opportunities as useful. Mm. We can't just limit our vision to just giving our packages of ODA here and there. I mean, the World Bank likes to do that. I'm sorry. But <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. But you have to move beyond that. It's looking beyond. Yep. That's the whole uh, idea. Absolutely. I agree. The, the last question I wanted to ask you that I'm curious about on a personal level is you've been the face of Tuvalu's fight against climate change. You've taken Tuvalu's case to the world. You've been at all the big events, spoken to all the world <laughs> leaders, and that is an enormous amount of pressure, I imagine. How does that feel to know that you play a very significant role in the future of your country? Well, I, I, of course, I appreciate the comments and thank you very much for that uh, commendation. But I must pay my give share that those sentiments, my thanks to my colleagues, to uh, my ambassadors uh, who've been working with me um, in in the area of negotiations, uh, not only from Tuvalu but also from the Pacific. These guys have stood with me, including Ambassador. Amena Iwoli, who just spoke in plenary. Um, I think we collectively we tried to uh, stay above the above the, um, the pressure of the sea level rising, and of course managed sometimes to punch or most of the time to punch above our weight, uh, because I I see we managed to get the adaptation fund uh, for the uh, of the Kyoto Protocol. We managed to save the Kyoto Protocol. We managed to also get, you know, the discussion on the, the Green Climate Fund and to get the Paris Agreement, you know, moving and then uh, successfully uh, completed. So I appreciate and I, I'm, I'm very, very privileged and I thank my people, my government in Tobago for allowing me to do that. And it was the main reason why we opened our mission in New York in 2000 mm. and I was selected to be the first ambassador to establish a mission there and it's mainly to engage with the world. I've, you know, done uh, significant engagement with a lot and I know a lot of leaders in the world, including the leader for, leaders of Australia, uh, past and now, and of course many leaders around the world. So I... I appreciate that. I enjoyed. Yeah. My hair has grown a lot of grey <laughs> right now. When I started off after uh, Sussex University, after Oxford University, after Sydney University, um, I mean, I had black hair. Yes. Now <laughs> completely white. And some people said, "Put some, you know, dye on your hair." I said, "Never," because it's reminding me and should tell the story of uh, my engagement. My, all my life has been, you know, serving the people of Tuvalu and the interests of Tuvalu. I hope, I hope it can contribute 
to the future, uh, you know, sustainable livelihoods of my country and the Pacific as well, mm. as well as the world. So I'm happy. Thank you. Yes. You've had a remarkable and continue to have a remarkable impact on the world, and it's very humbling for me to speak to you. What's your experience of this being to close? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm also privileged to be with him all, everywhere around the world, where I travel. Yeah. So it gives me also the opportunity to 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 see the world and also to to meet all the other leaders in the world wherever it goes, and also to to help our people in Tuvalu, and not only Tuvalu, but the Pacific people and uh, all the people of the world, yes. Yeah, well, I'm grateful for all that you do. Let me say this as a final words. I mean, the occupation of being a politician is quite an interesting one, and uh, I, I've been there trying to seek for opportunities of Tuvalu, to raise the voice of Tuvalu all these years. And then uh, I found out when I came home after um, the general elections, another guy took over as prime minister. You know, all these years I've been neglecting my farms, my banana plantations, my coconut plantations. I have no chickens running around up. All this time, I've been trying to get opportunities for Tuvalu. I come home poor to the bone, you know, and this is the hobby of a politician. And what do you uh, get is the, the pleasure and satisfaction of having contributed something and putting the voice of Tuvalu there. That is the biggest reward. And I, I really want our leaders to please take up that work. Uh, for the sake of Tuvalu. Thank you.